Welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast, the brand new Digital Wildcatter Studios. Here I am with Josh Young. I think you're breaking the virginity of the new studios. So. Oh, man. <laughs> Sorry about that or congratulations, however you're looking at that. I'll take it. Thank there you. There we go. Perfect. So now, who are you? Because we've never actually met before today. So uh, I know nothing about you. I, think, I follow you on Twitter. I think we've met uh twice before in person uh both of the times while drinking i think once was at a nap party in i think 2010 or 2009 something like that very briefly at oh a yeah cane. i've drunk a lot since then so yeah. yeah i don't remember that and uh and then another time at your house at a uh, crawfish boil which uh, i don't even eat crawfish so you know but it was <laughs> a cool party back. the uh yeah no i remember vividly that day drinking way too much being arrested by the Richmond police and singing on stage with Lindsay L. So that was a, that was a good day. It was a it was a pretty fun time. I I did not get arrested, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> it was great meeting lots of good people. That was a really like that was a great event. I mean, I think we wound up having almost four hundred people there that day, which was great. And what I tell people about the crawfish boil is everyone was so respectful of my house. It wound up great. It was the digital wildcatter podcasters coming from out of town that spent the night at my house that totally trashed it. The next morning, it looked like Animal House. But oh, man. Anyway. So give me the stats. Where'd you go to school? What have you done in your career? How'd you get to where you are now? Great. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to. So um, I'm from Santa Monica originally, Santa Monica, California. Um, I uh, went to the University of Chicago and studied economics. I graduated in two and a half years from there because I was in a rush for some reason. I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking. It wasn't wasn't that much fun to be there. So, you know, uh, that was Chicago is like great during the summer, but I could see the winters being a problem. Yeah. And the school really takes advantage of that by, you know, you don't really want to be outside. So you're in the library studying almost 100 percent of the time. It was, it was so two and a half years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I took a. I knew I was doing that, so I actually took my junior year off and went to Israel and kind of sat on the top of the mountain and thought about what I wanted to do with my life. Um, did you really? I did, yeah. We went fundraising in Israel, and the way it worked out is I had meetings Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, I was able to be in Israel, though, late Friday afternoon. So Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, I literally had a tour guide pick me up at seven in the morning and drop me off at nine at night. And so I saw all of it and it was gorgeous. I'm a big, huge Israel fan. I am too. It's a, I feel like I lived there for a year and I didn't see all of it. So you obviously did it better than me. <laughs> well, my whole thing was if Jesus stepped there, I wanted to go see it. That was, that was kind of my thing. The, the two things I had is you know, you go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and you go into the tomb where Jesus was. I was spending so much time trying to or trying to get my camera to take the picture, and they're hurrying you. They're like, "All right, come on, come on." You know, you got to move. That totally missed that moment. I mean, that should have been arguably, you know, big spiritual moment. And now nah, I've got grainy photos that really suck because there's not a lot of light in there. And the same thing was kind of true. 
at the church of the nativity where Jesus was born. You know, it's like you get up there and like, move along, move along, kid. So anyway. I think the closest I got to that was I did a bike ride around the Sea of Galilee, the Kinneret, in one day. And so it was pretty, uh, pretty fun, 45, 50 miles, something like that. So, you know, doable for, I was 20. Um, But, uh, you know, definitely a lot of different holy sites for different religions all kind of around that one lake. Yeah. No, it's uh, it was interesting because the driver of my car was Jewish, and my tour guide was Palestinian, and they actually got along. But when you were separate with them, I mean, the driver would be like, "They built a mosque on top of our temple," and you know, anyway. So yeah, uh, yeah, no, it was uh, it was interesting. But I was a big fan. So so in effect. Two and a half years of school, but it took you three and a half years to get out. Is I know talent, right? Of- that's yeah. yep, exactly that's what I did. Um, so I finished in December of two thousand four. Um, I got a, a kind of temporary job doing executive compensation consulting. I basically took two job offers coming out of school. Um, I did exec comp consulting for a few months, and then the idea was if I liked it, I was going to stay, and if not, I would leave. And then I had a like tech strategy consulting job lined up to start for kind of the normal time in like July of 2005. And, you and so both of them. I did. Nice. Um, I actually told them both that I, what I was doing oh, okay. and well, that's they kind of didn't mind one of like the, they both thought they were great jobs. It turns out consulting is really tough and no one is happy almost at any firm. So I'm I mean, on the edge of my seat. Which one won? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, I lasted an exec comp consulting for about two and a half months it turned out justifying overpaying CEOs and boards really just was not my thing. <laughs> That'll be $20,000 or whatever the, because uh, no, I don't mind the, I didn't mind the consulting fees. I thought the consultants were underpaid relative to the terrible things they were doing in terms of rationalizing overpaying people to the tune of tens of millions of dollars for underperforming for their companies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, no, I, uh, yeah, I totally, uh, I totally picked up on that. That's, so, so you did that and you went to the tech consulting? I did. I, so I was at a diamond, uh, I guess it was started out as a diamond cluster. And uh, that was, we were doing combination of fixing big projects at companies that were broken, as well as helping them figure out kind of where they were going to go from a strategy perspective. So tech consulting, do that for over a year. Um, it was kind of half tech consulting and half business consulting. The business part got bought out by Mercer Management, which okay, then turned yeah. into Oliver Wyman. So I went to Mercer and then Oliver Wyman. It's amazing. In two years, I had four consulting firm names on my resume. So there you go. Absolutely. Four talent. different business cards. Yep. Uh, four different business cards, uh, two different cities. The exec comp was in Los Angeles. I was back there for a little bit and then went back to Chicago um, and uh, did consulting there. I got a job in private equity in LA in early 2007, which was a great time to go because, man, private equity just absolutely blew up shortly after that. Right. Um, and as it blew up, I was the last person in the firm, so I was the first one to go. It was a generalist firm uh, doing business strategy or like business services and healthcare and technology related stuff. And uh, I'd always invested for fun since I think high school, middle school, something like that. I used to read the Motley Fool newspaper column. And uh, I ended up finding this family office that would pay me 
to invest in public companies. And I couldn't believe it. Right? I'd been to University of Chicago where they teach you that there's efficient markets and I had done well investing personally. And these guys were willing to pay me for my essentially hobby. So that was that was a pretty cool job. And that's we've now figured out the definition of friends, families and fools. <laughs> and so no, but that's cool. So that's is that the start of Bison or is that that was, was the that? way that was way before Bison. Okay. That was just uh, that was at this uh, multi-billion dollar single family office. Um, I was with them for a while and I learned a lot and I helped them allocate out to different uh, investment funds. I think it might have even been invested in Kane. Among other, I was about to say funds. which fund number, and I'll know whether <laughs> I need to apologize or. Uh... No, I think we did really well. I think it was. I think we were in a couple of the the funds, uh, you know, around the sort of two thousand eight, two thousand nine timeframe, and I think those did quite well because oil spiked and then crashed and then spiked, and yeah. I, think, I think they did well. Yeah, no, I, I mean the the only fund I think we had lose money was Fund Three, and that. That vintage was, I think that was 2007 vintage. And the 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 thing we screwed up big on that is uh, natural gas peaked in 07, right? Um, and it's kind of went in free fall for whatever, the next decade. Mm -hmm. But it was always in Contango, right? The strip. So we thought we were so smart, being so conservative. We're using 75% of the strip. Well, it's still contango. And so in hindsight, and feel free to say no shit, Sherlock, but in hindsight, you figured out, well, I just paid for a location that I will drill in year three, but it's not economic to drill today because of the content. You know, so one of the lessons from fund three was flat price decks, you know, and if it's not, if it's not reasonable to drill today, you probably shouldn't pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. Those are good lessons. Honestly, I made almost every mistake possible investing in oil and gas, including both of those. So, yeah. 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 So uh, it is so a painful industry. You really just have to, I feel like you have to, it almost doesn't matter who you are or what you've studied. And I looked at all the different funds and saw the mistakes they made and, you know, had access to all this information from that family office and from the different funds that would pitch us and read a lot of books about investing, knew of a lot of stuff. And, you know, everyone makes these mistakes. I think it was just, you know, it's a, benefit of having done it for long enough is hopefully you don't repeat the same mistakes that you've made. Yeah. Learn from them. Yeah. I was, uh, that was, that was, that was definitely a big lesson. So, so family office and what are you doing? Um, I left, uh, kept, uh, kept consulting for them for a while after I left, um, tried to launch a long short hedge fund, which never got to scale, stayed super small, uh, and ended up mostly for the next few years doing these sort of one-off uh, oil deals, mostly public, uh, mostly sort of gathering together a pool of capital from different family offices and wealthy people I knew, some energy execs, and finding situations that were very asymmetric. Like uh, Chesapeake, as Aubrey McClendon was leaving, um, they sued Gastar for some land deal that was very complicated. And the lawsuit was frivolous, but it looked like the legal, the head general counsel, it looked like this was a way to, they did a number of lawsuits over a very short amount of time. And it looked like a reason to kind of justify keeping their job for a while. So that was what it looked like. Who knows what was actually happening? Um, brought in some lawyers to figure it out, um, who I essentially partnered with. They, they got my financial diligence. I got their legal diligence and they were free to do with it what they wanted. I think they bought some stock and made a lot of money. 
And so that one, for example, raised a bunch of money, bought a bunch of Gastar stock at like a dollar. And then I think the last stock I showed up in middle of 2014 at one of my client's houses and made him sell the stock at $9. So nice. it was amazing. Um, and some of those were really successful. That was probably the most successful, but that was basically what I was doing from 2010 to 2015. Because, you know, we had an interesting thing happen. Treadstone, which was, I think, a 12-bagger. I mean, it was one of the best deals we ever did, if not the best deal we ever did. It was really interesting because we ran for sale and we had a buyer step up and wanted to preempt the process. And I'll just say it, it was Aubrey. Aubrey actually showed up. This was post Chesapeake and he showed up and threw a number on the table and we were like, yeah, let's do it, Aubrey. And he just dragged on coming up with the, uh, the sale and purchase agreement comments. You know, we kept saying, Hey, where are your comments? Where are your comments? And we got to bid date mm -hmm. and somebody came in and topped him. Hmm. And, uh, so anyway, we were like, Holy cow. So we started negotiating a PSA with them. And it was wild because they said, hey, we just want to drive around the field. It'll give us a lot of comfort on the PSA if we can just go see it. Hmm. And we're like, that's not a weird request. So it's like, okay. Site visit, know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, site visit. You know, fair enough. So we did. It had rained the day before. And so the rocks were all wet. And it was a young engineer driving around. And he claimed it was oil spills everywhere. And we were just like, no, it's water. I mean, it had rained last night. I mean, yeah. these are brand new wells. Anyway, so the company backed off. And then another bidder was there that we had been stiff arming. And they actually upped their offer $100 million or something like wow. that. So I've never had that happen before in my life where the bids keep going up. Usually it's the other way, right? They keep going down. But the reason I bring this up is... They had to finance it with high yield. And so this was July of 2014. So there was literally a two-week window in the high yield market where that deal could get done. One week earlier, it wouldn't have gotten done. One week later, it wouldn't have gotten done. But they got it done. They bought it from us and kind of off to the races. Who was the buyer there? That was Energy and Exploration. It oh. was a private company. I remember them. Yeah. They were, they wound up, stepped up and, uh, and bought Treadstone. And uh, it's, yeah, it's so amazing that literally just timing on those things because we all know what happened Thanksgiving Day of that year. Yeah, was was that East Texas Eagleford kind of, was that the... Yeah, it, it, it was the, the, it was the Fort Trinidad field in East Texas and it was the Georgetown, the Glen Rose and the Buddha. And we were going in drilling verticals and commingling it kind of like a Wolfberry style style thing. And it, it was the wildest thing because we, I forget the metrics, but we paid like $15 million for the field and PDP was maybe 10, eight or 10. We had four old well bores that we could go in and try our thesis on commingling. And those fracks were going to cost, call it another seven, eight million bucks. So all told, we were going to have, call it $25 million in it, but we'd at least get to test our thesis. And those first four wells that we did, those recompletions all came on at a thousand barrels a day. It was just the wildest thing ever. And uh, yeah, no, it was just crazy. It was crazy. And we so that, just at that point, you stop and you just sell it. Right? <laughs> Is that the plan? Well, yeah, it, actually we wound up, we just kept poking them in, the, poking holes in the ground. and. 
you know, the, the low would kind of be 300 barrels a day and the high would be 1200 barrels a day, but yeah, it just went crazy. And we went from, we bought 200 barrels a day, I think. And when we sold it, it was 12,000 barrels a day in like wow. 18 months. I mean, That's that'll phenomenal. never happen again. Right. That was yeah. just kind of dumb luck, but yeah, no, it all, we got that sale done and we were literally sitting there saying, well, okay, we'll let these guys try to go raise the high yield to buy it. And we were sitting there going, but we'll just hold it. We'll keep drilling these forever. So lucky. Yeah. So lucky. Yeah. So, so you kind of had, you were doing sort of one-off deals and then do you go raise a fund on that? Is that how Bison comes around? Or we- Yeah. So it turned out, so, so those mostly were successful. And then the ones that were active at the end of 2014 were highly unsuccessful. Yeah. And it turns out that if you go raise money from people on a one-off basis, if you lose them money once, they want you to lose their number. Yes. So that was not a good business model because you cannot have a hundred percent hit rate. If anyone ever tells you they have a hundred percent hit rate, they're lying to you and they're trying to steal your money. And yes. if you have a business that's subject to or contingent to continue on a hundred percent hit rate, it's a bad business and you shouldn't do it. And so, um, it was just not a good idea. The the record was good at that point. And one of the two deals that was big and active right then, we were able to get out actually for a very minor loss in early 2015, which was amazing. Um, we partly resold it. It was a convertible debt deal with a Permian player, partly resold it to the company, partly they helped find us uh, someone to buy it. And so um, that was helpful too. And uh through one of the participants in one of these deals, I'd gotten to know a um, investment banker who was doing high, high net worth and family office advisory, and uh, he and I got together and we figured that it was a good environment in the middle of 2015 after oil stocks had fallen a lot, oil prices had reset lower. Um, the idea was to use essentially my deal-making, stock-picking sort of approach and um, have him bring a set of clients. Obviously, he couldn't bring clients from the bank, but he could leverage his relationships. And it turns out, actually, you guys go way back, uh, I think, uh, childhood friends, so <laughs> or something <laughs> along those lines. And so um, we, uh, we set up a fund together to do sort of a portfolio of these sort of one-off uh, investments, and, and that's what uh, Bison is. Gotcha. And so that is what? That's circa 2015? That's right, yeah. And so... What's the pitch back then to investors? Was it literally this oil's crashed? It's we're at a bottom. Now's the time to to uh, to buy. Because part of what I want to hear a little bit about is just investor sentiment during the life of Bison. Because I I know that you know 2015 to me getting shown the door in 2020. I mean the investor world just topsy turvy crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So so public equity sentiment has been terrible since probably since 2016. So it's, it wasn't quite terrible yet in 2015. People still were kind of in this like buy the dip mode. And so the, the pitch was less, hey, we well, know. Well, you know, in the because I said Thanksgiving Day as I was watching oil plunge and, you know, I was face down in pecan pie because I was going to you know eat, eat my troubles away. But I was saying there would never be another equity deal done in oil and gas and First quarter of 2015 was whatever, $12 billion. I mean, it was, there was a lot of equity raised. 
Yeah, yeah. In um, the public markets. So my take was I, I kind of figured the shale bubble w- would burst because there wasn't that much access to capital, and I was wrong. And that oil prices would slowly recover over time, and I was wrong about that too. And that a value-oriented strategy, buying companies with good management teams, good assets, and strong balance sheets that were less unconventional, at lower decline rates, had just more survivability that that would outperform over time. And that part was right. Yeah. You know, it was interesting. Back when I was at Stevens, before I joined Kane, I did this study and it was incredibly, let's call it just anecdotal. Cause I mean, it was not, it was not a, a grand study, if you will, but just, I went through every publicly traded company in some range, call it a hundred million to a billion or something. And I divided the, the, the companies into thirds and the thirds were my view of the quality of management. You know, so we had good management, okay management, bad management. And the rule we always have is when I was at Stevens, don't take my opinion about anything because I didn't know anything. But what I found was really interesting is when you looked back through the peaks, the kind of ups and the downs, um, the good management teams actually performed way better in the troughs and not as well in the up times. Um, and it was the reverse. The real crappy management teams did really well in the, uh, in the bad time or in the good times, but just horribly in the bad times. And I think maybe at the end of the day, that was probably just balance sheet because they were over levered, you know, cause generally bad management and over levered go hand in hand. And, uh, so was that what happened in the public markets kind of in 2015, or you're just saying performance for the good, the value stocks just did better than everything? Um, I think it's complicated. I think I'm not measuring management teams based on their sort of recent share price performance. I measure it differently based on their value add, kind of what the situation looks like when they step in and what it looks like over time through their involvement, through operational performance, through capital management, through balance sheet management. There's a number of different kind of criteria to look at. And is that a subjective sort of, is that kind of a, a subjective list you have or there's some quantitative measures to that? I mean, it's easier with companies, with management teams that have led multiple companies because you can look at the track record of those companies. You look at the MOIC, right? So the amount of money right. invested versus the amount of money delivered back to investors. And then you can look at the internal rate of return and sort of see what their track record is. So if you have a, a CEO who's in, and we'll get to this, one of my active companies that's done really well recently, they um, are led by someone where they went public in 2014 and the stock got crushed and then it slowly recovered. But the guy had a phenomenal track record at his last two companies. And so you could look at the stock performance and say, hey, they went public at 12 and within a year they were at less than a dollar, man, this guy sucks. Or you could say, hey, he's had a almost 40 year career, 30 something years, independently wealthy from the success that he's had at past companies. Senior exec at a company that went from four to 100, CEO of a company that went from four to 12 over a short amount of time and then he got kicked out. So I don't know, I mean, you look at it, I think there's a lot of complexity. So I guess it's somewhat subjective, but also driven by historical returns and attributable performance and activity. 
Yeah, that was one of the hardest things we'd have to do on the private side is kind of twofold. It's one, if somebody was the divi- the South Texas division lead at EOG, how good were they really? Were they just gifted great assets? And so they have all these great metrics, but you know, were they able to actually go out and acquire the acreage and come up with the thesis? That, and then two, we had management teams that made a lot of money and they sucked. I mean, it was almost despite themselves. And conversely, we had people that were really thoughtful, allocated capital well, and just got hit by tidal waves of the beta. And so I see what you're saying. You know, it's I mean, to some extent this this kind of sucks, but you know, Napoleon said, get me lucky generals. So, yeah. you know, you gotta you gotta mix, I think, a variety of factors. So maybe it is more subjective than I'd like to think, but um really staying focused on those different attributes, which were important to these different special situations that I'd been doing before, I think has served has served me well. And you can kind of see it in uh, you know, can't talk about the performance that I've had generally, but can talk about specific companies that I had mentioned publicly and we've started tracking them and they've done quite well. And you can kind of see what those people look like who are running those companies. And you can kind of see kind of what the balance sheets look like, what the assets look like and where there's uh, where there was kind of hidden value and appeal that maybe wasn't so obvious at the time that we got in. And so, yeah, without talking about specific returns, I mean, has it really been that much in the way of bifurcation in terms of folks that have actually really outperformed versus has this just been the tidal wave up because of of product prices? So um, I've I've been saying it's a little bit like Forrest Gump where I got on a shrimping boat in 2015 and uh, there was a terrible storm. Right. And <laughs> I rode through the storm and, uh, you know, my, my, my business partner, I started it with, um, you know, at some point it wasn't his passion and he pursued his passion and I held on. And at many points, it seemed like a terrible decision to hang on, but I just saw that it would work and stuck through it. And, and so I think some of it was tenaciousness and some of it was a uh, faith in, uh, this sort of, uh, this sector specific business cycle being like other sector specific business cycles, both in other sectors, as well as the history of oil and gas. And so understanding the history and understanding the dynamics, I got the timing wrong, but I just was sure that there would be another up cycle. And so having that sort of vision, I think along with the tenaciousness allowed for ability to be there. And if you're there and there's almost no one else who's there from a professional investing perspective, I mean, you know, I don't think it's beta. I think it's stock selection. Yeah. The, um, you know, it was so January of 2020, I was telling LPs, Hey, by the end of the year, we're going to be at 75 or 80. Um, we have maxed out U S production and that's been the problem, right? I mean, it was doubling U S production that caused oil prices to go to the thirties and yeah, the pandemic came in and I think accelerated obviously the price decline, but also accelerated the decrease in CapEx, if that's even the way to appropriately say that. And it just heightened the bounce back that we're, we're having now, but you could see that back in, in 19 and 20, that this was coming, 
you know? Yeah, that made COVID even more painful. I mean, obviously there was a whole kind of human aspect of it, but knowing that we were running out of cheap oil, knowing that the shale boom was over and living through negative oil and then very long kind of negative sentiment, low prices, people just giving up. I mean, a lot of people had hung on and they gave up. And it was very lonely and very hard to be able to keep that vision, understand that this would be, there would be a huge recovery. I mean, I don't even think we're, I don't think we're done. I think we're just getting started with what, what this recovery looks like. And the negative sentiment is still there. I had breakfast with people who are managing portfolios that they're still having to sell either because of their view or their limited partners views. And, you know, there's still just so much despondency, so much loss. I mean, there's a long way to go for the industry. So, so three things I want to hit on. Um, One, so what's investor sentiment these days are, you know, does the phone ring every once in a while with the generalist saying, tell me about energy, or is it still we're just on the shun list? Um, so so people have always kind of wanted free investment advice. <laughs> they never <laughs> yeah. don't. Uh, maybe for like the second half of 2020 and early 21, they didn't want it. But otherwise, people have always wanted that. Um, I don't think that's necessarily as much of an indicator. I think the, the big thing I've been tracking that is wild and not at all what people who are negative about the industry will say or focus on is that the shareholder bases for a lot of the public companies are not really expanding. It looks like a lot of them have recovered through retail investment, not through institutional investment. And then on the futures side, oil prices have risen, but the open interest is really low. Some of that's the uh, commodity trading, like Trafigura and Vital and whatever, kind of having liquidity issues and being forced to delever. Some of its margin requirements rising. But you can just tell oil prices are high despite oil as a commodity being massively unpopular. So there's lots of anecdotes and lots of whatever. And one of the things I think that's kept me in business is really focusing where I can find data on the data and what the data says. And then keeping in mind kind of what the anecdotes are, but sometimes the anecdotes are actually, um, they kind of lead you the wrong direction and, and the data often kind of is the ultimate tell. And the, the data is that oil has maybe almost never been as unpopular measured by uh, exposure versus performance, exposure versus momentum, exposure versus value, um, the relative value for oil. I mean, it's just... It's so compelling, and the fundamentals of the market are so compelling, and the price is just not. I know it feels like it's high because it was so low for so long, but it's just not anywhere close to where it should be based on what the fundamentals are. So I was never a public investor, um, but let me throw this at you because I think I'm going to be making the case you just made. I sit there. And if you wanted to say that that oil is fairly valued today, whether that's company stocks or whatever, you you sit there and say, okay, we're using the strip, and it's just it's a massive backwardation. You know, I mean, we're at whatever 110, 115 today. We could go out to calendar 25, and I think we could buy a barrel for 72 bucks. You know, that's right. so we're in massive backwardation. So if if we're gonna say it's fairly valued, we could kind of say okay, yeah, we've got a blip here, but long-term we ought to be using 70. 
We could also say, hey, you know, you guys have bought PDP at PV10 to PV12 forever. The volatility of the commodity, the the workovers, the unscheduled annual workover that you have to do on the well and the extra costs always there. Not supposed to talk about those. Yeah, I know. The the annual non-recurring workover. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's it shouldn't be a 10% rate of return. It should be 20. You know, I mean, you, you could make a case that discount rates should be sort of a lot higher. And if you say, given all that, to drill a well, you need a 50% rate of return. Don't know that, you know, at 70, that there's a lot to do that. So you could make that case that that it's kind of fairly valued, if if you will, or it's slightly undervalued, not as massive as you say. A lot of that's predicated on the backwardation of the strip. My whole point there is you don't have a natural buyer for the oil three to four years out because who was that? Traditionally, it was transportation. It was the airlines. And if there's anyone sucking worse than anybody else, it's the airlines, right? Because of COVID. They still haven't come out of, I mean, I still think we're at what? 85, 90% of airline traffic. So we're not back. They're still having to be careful. They still have their balance sheet issues they need to worry about. That's right. So I think the the backwardation of the oil strip is because there is no natural buyer and it's ridiculous. I would be loading up on all the calendar $25.72 oil I could buy. One of my best friends in the investment world, um, is a macro fund manager and he and I have debated several times. He likes the long dated options on oil and I like the equities. And, you know, frankly, the equities right now are crushing it versus those options. So I can't take a victory lap yet because I think you're right. I think those do well. But right now, I think I think what's happening is that the front end of the curve is so high that the companies that are unhedged or relatively unhedged are making bonanza profits. And those bonanza profits are going to deleveraging, they're growing, going to buybacks, they're going to dividends, and in some cases, they're going to growth. All of those things are massively positive relative to a very depressed sector that's actually still seeing capital outflow, not inflow. And so it's pretty, pretty promising, I think, on both sides. One thing I think is um, interesting that I saw, and one of the things we've done um, at Bison is a combination of our own sort of proprietary research on various kind of niche macro things. So like we figured out that Waha Basis was going to be strong for a while and bought some stuff out in West Texas. We saw that the um, Midcon Basis was going to be real strong. So we bought a bunch of Sandridge, which everyone hated and we're saying it would go bankrupt and it's up like over 10x. And almost got you kicked off the podcast right there. Oh man, Sandridge. I know, I know. Everyone hates it. I love it so much that everyone hates it. Everyone says, oh, the production's falling off cliff. It's flat. It went bankrupt. It was terrible. It lost people a ton of money. Different people, almost different assets, whole different profile. They have almost $5 a share of cash on the balance sheet. Um, and it's building like a dollar a share, a quarter of cash. I own the stock, not recommending it. Just, you know, it's amazing to me how much people hate something. They just should have renamed it, right? Like then people <laughs> wouldn't care so much. <laughs> you know? Get a go get a pharmaceutical name like all the other oil and gas companies are adopting. Yeah. Yeah. So so one of the things that we'll also do is where we find interesting analysis that's not ours, 
will incorporate it and cite it. And so we've seen, I think it's four or five different groups that all kind of came out with this around the same time. Um, and then we looked at it and validated it. Um, backwardation is very bullish. Backwardation tells you that the spot market, the physical market is very tight and it accelerates the depletion of inventories. And the, it just tells you that people want oil right now. And one of, I know that's a, that's a narrative. The data is that in backwardated markets, oil is highly likely to be rising, not falling. So if you look at the history of oil price movements, at any point, if oil is in backwardation, it is more likely that the spot oil price a month from then will be higher than it is that it will be lower. Well, I mean, and part of that goes to our screw-ups early on in Contango. It's really easy to talk yourself into drilling today because the Contango nature, if you can throw in higher prices in the future for the next 40 years, it makes your economics so much better. You put it into backwardation. I mean, yeah, shale wells, you get half your cash flow in whatever, 18 months to three years. But at the same time, it crushes IRRs with lower prices. So that that makes sense. Yeah, I think I think one thing that I do that's really different from almost everyone that I know in the US who's in oil and gas is I am much less shale centric. And I know I talked about that a little bit in terms of like what the vision was for Bison and the type of profile of company, but I don't like companies that have high decline rates because if I'm buying them based on cash flow and they have a high decline rate, that means they have to spend a lot of money just to keep their production flat which means they don't generate a lot of free cash flow unless commodity prices are very high. So there's not very much margin of safety. You look at the companies that have gone bankrupt and you know the conventional ones went bankrupt too, but they had so much debt on them. If you look at a conventional company with no debt or very little debt on it, it takes a lot for a conventional company with a low decline rate to go bankrupt. And it doesn't take very much for a shale company to just blow out their production, reset way lower and you know just it's a very different business. Are you tired of relying on landmarks, smoke signals, and pump jacks to get to location? When you do use apps such as Google Maps, Waves, or Apple, they only get you in close proximity to the well site location, but figuring out how to get to the location often comes with its own headaches of navigating lease roads. And if you're a dispatcher managing a fleet, how do you show your drivers exactly where to go to get there? Getting lost while driving to locations is a common theme in our industry. Navigating through unnamed roads can be frustrating and brutal. In our industry where time's money, getting lost is anything but efficient and acceptable. In fact, oil field workers say they spend on average over 20 minutes a day lost on lease roads, if not hours. Sound familiar? I got some game-changing news for you right here, so listen up. Wellsite Navigator is introducing the new technology you've been asking for, lease road navigation. They've already mapped over 19,000 miles of oil field lease roads that don't appear anywhere else, and every week they're adding more. Wellsite Navigator is the most trusted, most downloaded oil field mobile app of all time. Founded almost 10 years ago as the first navigation app for the oil field, they've helped more than 100,000 oil field hands find millions of well sites in 22 states quickly, safely, and reliably. Most of their users come from word of mouth, so help spread the word. They're giving all Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast listeners, their first month free when you click on the link in the show notes. Plus, when you refer a friend, they get their first month free. 
and you get a $10 Amazon gift card. Follow the link in our show notes to get started. Make your life easier. Because, you know, the banks missed all that, I think, when you went from conventional lending. Because if, if we just make this up and you can borrow 60% of PDP PV10, you know, a, con- a conventional decline rate will be, call it 15%, maybe 20%. Yep. And your projects, your CapEx, CapEx projects are much more discreet. It's like, okay, we have a 3D seismic shoot here. There's a bright spot. Or we're going to go drill three puds offsetting this PDP. With shale, one, the decline curves are much more or much steeper, right? Mm-hmm. That's number one. Number two, you can't stop the train. I mean, the train's going. So by the time the bank who's loaned 60% of PDP PV10 figures out that the B factor is one instead of 1.3, and it's time to go stop the train. You already have twelve rigs running, and all your all all the uh, the asset value you thought that was going to you know pay your loan back has now disappeared. So yeah. I think I think the banks made it just a horrible fundamental decision to not revamp loaning and credit type metrics, statistics, procedures when we moved into the shell. Revolution. It wasn't just the banks, though, to be fair. It was also bond investors and equity investors. So it was everyone that made oh, yeah. that mistake. It wasn't just one. You know, it's easy to pick on the banks because they end up holding the bag in bankruptcy to some extent um, if it's a bad bankruptcy. But um, really, it was kind of the capital providers across the board. You know, I made that mistake too. And many people pick on one of the biggest pushbacks I've seen in talking to US investors about some of the investments I'm making in Canada is they'll make analogies to Lynn or Brightburn or some of these other disaster blow-up master limited partnerships that claim to have very low decline rates. The reality was that by the time these companies were blowing up, they had been active in horizontal development in places like the Granite Wash, like the Permian, et cetera. And their decline rates- I mean, there were were offshore assets in MLPs. Yeah. But uh, I mean, right, there, were, there was that, what was the one where there was a offshore infrastructure that they had stuck in one of the MLPs and uh, they turned off the production. I think it was Energy 21 was feeding into it. It was a core REIT or something. Yeah. They turned off the production and it's like, okay, well, you know, yeah, we have a, uh, uh, it wasn't a take or pay, it was an area dedication. But if you turn off the production, you just have no cash flow, just a cost. <laughs> right. So, right. Yeah. I mean, it was. It was so I'm way older than you. I remember when MLPs started taking propane businesses uh public and mm-hmm. you were like going, they only use propane in the winter. You know, I mean they're not a lot of steak grilling in the summer. Not enough to make the profitability. I do the, I do my part, but yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> I do I do my part. But yeah, no, it was amazing what they would jam in the structure. Yeah, yeah. But it was less about the structure and more about a claimed sort of business model. And a big deviation from the claim. And so if you're in a company at a 10 or even 20% decline rate, that just works much better than a company at a 40% decline rate. And it's not the claimed decline rate by the company. It's actually validated because, man, (laughs) you listen to some of these claims still. I remember years ago, I was at a conference, one of the investment bank conferences, and a seasoned portfolio manager left left the one-on-one area and... You know, people were asking him, hey, you learn anything? He's like, oh, they are slinging the bullshit. And, you know, I really, I couldn't appreciate it at the time, but really just the the level of misrepresentation still in the public market 
and on the private side, of course, on when sale processes and stuff. I mean, it's pretty pretty tough. So you got to cut through that. And I think on the lower decline stuff, there's often really interesting opportunities. Well, because when right before quarantine, like like literally whatever that was, March. 13th that we all went and I was on a flight back from New York to Houston. So I'd been in Houston that week before and I'd run around and talk to a bunch of public investors. I was like, Hey, you're public. I'm private. Let's talk about what's going on. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the things I kept hearing time and time again from the public investors is we have no idea what this fucking tail's worth. I mean, we see 50% rate of returns. We, we see the decline curve. But it's like PDP, PV10 is never up at the end of the year in the reserve report, you know. And uh, I think, you know, I've kind of said on the podcast numerous times, it's like if I ran a public oil and gas company, I would just publish all my production data. Let everybody go out and make their own reserve reports on on uh, on what my wells are doing, because. I mean, I, I think that's why investors are like, I'll pay you for four year, three years of cash flow or four years of cash flow, but that's it because I don't know what your tail's worth. It's possible. It's possible that that's, those are the valuations for other reasons. Um, companies have published their performance, their well performance, and in many cases, they've misrepresented it after or while publishing it. So oh, yeah. it actually well, doesn't even solve the problem. Yeah. Well, fraud's fraud. You know, <laughs> so. But let's talk Canada, because you you seem to know U.S., Canada, and, and being able to go back and forth. Every time I went to Canada, I got my hat handed to me. So It's rough. They, uh, they're real polite. <laughs> <laughs> What's this on the boot? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's polite. And then, you know, next thing you know, you don't have your wallet or it's empty. Um, so uh, I ended up actually taking control of a Canadian publicly traded company in 2017. Um I invested in 2016. There were some board dissent. Uh, the public markets, uh, the company lost the endorsement of the public market. It had gone from $10 at the peak in 2014. When I got involved, the stock went down. I think it was at 70 cents when I joined the board and around that when I became chairman of the board and um, replaced the board, replaced the management team, sold assets, and then drilled a little and sold the company to a Warburg and CPP backed uh, private company. And so through that process over almost two years, got to know that market really well. I'd already been interested in it because there had been these varying movements in valuation between the US and Canada, where at any given point, a Canadian company might be at two turns higher or two turns lower valuation than a US similar sort of company. So, Is there a way to arbitrage between that or at least take advantage of that somehow? Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm pretty focused on the long side and just, I find that the best way to get good returns is by really focusing on the best opportunities to compound money and be able to earn a multiple times return over time. And so, um, by doing that, I think I end up doing better on my long investments and I just give up the sort of downside protection associated or the whatever people think they're getting from shorting stocks. And, you know, sometimes that can be really painful because you get squeezed or whatever, and it's a big distraction. So I'm not doing any sort of direct arbitrage. It's more of a, hey, if Canadian oil and gas stocks are generally trading at a big premium to U.S., I'll go sell some of my Canadian stocks and redeploy yeah. cheaper in the U.S., 
and vice versa if they're cheaper in Canada, which they were for a while. I mean, for a while, I think people thought that Bison was just a Canadian-focused oil and gas fund. <laughs> and, you know, we had exposure, but it was mostly because there was this history where Canadian stocks had been more expensive up until I think it was 2012 or 2014, something like that. They got eviscerated, partly because a very left-wing party got control of Alberta and they were very negative right. uh, to the industry. It'd be like if uh, it's like in Colorado, where Colorado drilling got way harder and valuations for Colorado companies fell a lot. Similar thing happened in Alberta. So valuations yes, fell. we have to hear about that every day on Twitter. Yeah, I'm I, sorry. I, I actually feel really bad for the folks up there, but God, they're bitter. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to get into specific current <laughs> politics. <laughs> I don't, don't want to get. But, I don't uh, want to get flamed right now. So. Yeah, but but I mean, look. I think I think uh, the NDP in Alberta. Frankly, the other parties in Alberta haven't. It's just been a tough. It's been a tough situation for various kind of specific reasons. But um, NDP getting power in Alberta, the left wing party, um, really hurt the cost of capital. And so companies that ten traded to seventy cents, whereas companies in the U.S at 10 might have gone to $3 or $5 from 2014 to let's say 2015 or 16. Well, and I mean, I, I, okay, I'll go ahead and say this. So I'll just mm -hmm. get eviscerated out on Twitter, but whatever. It's not as simple as, oh, Biden's going to give us a windfall profits tax. Biden's bad. That's why none of us are going. I mean, come on guys, let's be real. We destroyed a ton of capital. They put us in the penalty box. We have to be Careful. So that's a lot of the reason we're not drilling because our investors won't let us. I think there's there's there the the truth is somewhere in the middle. Um, but I will say this uh, about the situation that happened in Alberta. I mean, it does matter. I mean, policy does matter, and it's also kind of just the threat of what could happen matters too. And so I think I think everything the, that that the government did up in Alberta. Yeah, there were some bad things done, but there was also the holy cow, we can't invest capital there. God yeah. knows what those radicals are going to do. Yeah, I think I think that's a good sort of nuance um, in the sort of it's Biden's fault or the government's fault versus it's greedy management and investors' fault. I think I think government does a big job, and unfortunately to some extent, but the government's very involved in private industry in the U.S. and around the world these days. It's not a free market and the government sets the tone, the government is deeply involved in tax and regulation, and the government regulates lenders and regulates um, business activity, drilling and uh, permitting and air permitting and all kinds of other, um, other sorts of uh, regulations. And so the government really can set the tone of capital availability. And so investors might think, oh, I only wanna invest in companies that are returning capital, and they might think it's their unique idea, but in a lot of respects, that idea and that sort of um, theme or feeling may be getting set from a regulatory perspective where when you set a very negative regulatory framework and you set a very uh, sort of negative, hostile approach towards an industry, you signal to either directly through regulations and taxes and so on, or indirectly verbally you signal that your this industry is out of favor and should not have capital deployed so i don't know that I, I think it's a very nuanced complicated thing like you're saying but i think that there is a big part of it where there's a tone that's set as well as direct regulatory intervention that impacts i mean 
banks aren't lending that much to oil and gas anymore. And I think it's really hard to argue that banks not lending is not affecting drilling activity. Yeah, I mean, because we wouldn't, I mean, maybe the war makes it different and energy security is pushed to the forefront. And so we feel better about, I mean, we need to do something we feel better about it. But if I'd asked you two months ago, hey, in three years, all of the banks are going to be brought before Congress and they're all going to be having to answer why they're polluting the world. And there's legislation on the table to stop lending to oil and gas companies. Would you be shocked? I'm not saying that was the base case, but it wouldn't shock you if AOC was leading the House committee investigation on hydrocarbons. I mean, they're actively talking about that right now. There's a proposal from the SEC to require uh, climate disclosures. Yeah. And it appears that that's intended We're to in be- We're in the 60-day comment period on it. Yeah, like, that's, that's intended. Real. Someone tried telling me, it's it's been very weird recently. I've gotten some press and there have been more kind of inquiries to invest with me. And some of them are legitimate and some of them are people just wanting to talk to me, which is like really unfortunate. I mean, it's just a waste of time and and- yeah, I'm, I'm trying to sensing that. No, I'm kidding. I'm <laughs> yeah, just no, no, kidding. No, no, this no. has been no, fun. This I'm is just great. Joking. That's this is not what I mean. <laughs> I mean people like trying to solicit either investment advice or just to lecture me or something. And someone really wanted to talk about how um how government policy is not affecting the oil and gas industry. And they told me that I, I said what I just said, and you're like, yeah, it's the comment period. They're like, no, that's wrong. Well, no, I mean, they announced it. This is the regulatory process. You announce something, you go through a comment period, and then you address it. Um, so we're still in an increasingly negative regulatory environment for oil and gas here in the U.S. Because so, we have no idea how that's going to play out. I mean... Well, we have some idea, and it's not good. Yeah, I mean, we, 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 we live through Sarbanes-Oxley, um, and it costs a whole lot of money. It made it harder to go public if you were a smaller company and all. But, I mean, I think that's a fraction of what's going to happen with this possibly, given what lawyers are going to go do. I mean, how many lawsuits are we going to have from everyone touched by any sort of pollution when you have public data that you can walk in and point to? That's going to be tough. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing that's really sad is that there are people that are hurt by us not drilling. And, frankly, since the since Ukraine was invaded um, I've actually invested in several drilling deals or equity raises by companies to accelerate development. So I'm directly supporting additional development where it's highly economic and where it fits with a business strategy. But I think that there's real problems with us not with us not providing more energy to the world. And whether it's a whatever side of the debate you're on, whether it's government's fault or investors' fault, I think really when there's a shortage of something and Poor people and disenfranchised people in India and China and Sub-Saharan Africa and South America need something. I think it's really important as a human to do what you can to help provide this thing that helps prevent starvation. And we're hearing world leaders talk about potentially food shortages. I mean, this used to be a Doomberg article, and now it's Biden and Macron talking yeah. about there being food shortages. So I think there's really, I think there's a moral imperative to try to provide more energy. And here you have regulators, uh, you have politicians saying, oh, we're not against oil, even though they are on video saying they are against oil right. and gas and want to end drilling. And then you have their regulators 
trying to like setting the stage and, and introducing additional risk to operating in oil and gas. It's a very it's a very tough position. I mean, I, I always run around and I've said this my whole career. People die when energy prices are high. They just do. I mean, that's tragic, but it's true. And people also die when we buy energy from authoritarian dictators. I mean, we just do bad stuff happens because of it. So let's let's take it here. Um, and I'll I'll kind of frame it up with this. I uh, I actually you know there's a meme out on Twitter that says name the fastest animals on the planet: the cheetah, the hummingbird, Chuck Yates with a microphone running towards someone that hates the oil and gas business and. I don't think I hate the oil and gas business. I think I just, I'll call something out if I see it, but that's a debate for another time. So I actually get calls from the other side. I mean, environmentalists are reaching out through Twitter, LinkedIn and say, hey, can we talk? And what's interesting is they don't view the burning of hydrocarbons as the evil that they say it is. Um, they don't think it's good. But at the end of the day, they don't think the world's going to end in 10 years and the like. They they drive their SUVs, I mean, and, and the like. They just feel like they have to play dirty pool in the public discourse because they don't trust us as actors. They're like, hey, you know, you guys have covered up stuff about climate change. You guys pollute. You guys are bad actors. We just don't trust you and all that. So. Kind of with that as the framework, how do we get the narrative back? Because I do think when you talk about like all of the inventions out there, I mean, you start talking the wheel, fire, hydrocarbons. I mean, your life expectancy doubles when you start stop burning shit and you start burning hydrocarbons, plus quality of life goes up. And I'm one of those guys that I think we ignore CO2 levels going from 300 parts per million to 425 parts per million over the last 100 years and temperature going up one and a half degrees. I think we ignore that at our own peril. I mean, it's correlation. I don't know that it's causation yet. We can debate all that. But at the end of the day, I mean, we need to watch that. But oh my God, all the things you were just saying. I mean, all these people, poor people that want to have their standard of living raised hydrocarbons does that and how do we get that narrative back because that's really what i've been killing brain cells about the last year year and a half and i don't have a good answer to it so i think there's a few things to to look at that i think are relevant for today's today's environment um one is that politicians and advocates of environmental policy that are anti-hydrocarbon have been actively buying beachfront homes in florida and elsewhere so I think more focus on, uh, Warren Buffett says this, although ironically he supports some of these causes. So it's like this right. very weird thing. He says, focus on what people do, not what they say. And so when you look at AOC hanging out in Miami, when she's supposed to be pro mask and pro whatever, without masks, without, right. you know, uh, at these clubs and stuff, when she's pro lockdown and then hanging out in this place that she's saying should be underwater or Al Gore or these other guys. I mean, people, they're buying houses on islands that if if the sea levels rose three inches, they would be underwater in a storm. And so you look at what people do, not what they say. They fly to climate conferences in their private jets. They eat steak there, They whatever. 
and then they want everyone else to not do these different things. It looks like it's more about control, but I think one aspect of the narrative is just focusing on people's behavior and the behavior is not indicative. And frankly, that's a big part of what I do in my management evaluation. I look at what people do. Did they buy a bunch of stock? They say it's cheap. Did they buy it? With public companies, it's easy. Did they buy stock in the market anywhere close to this price? If they have not purchased, purchased stock with their money, not granted through some sort of ridiculous stock option plan or whatever, if they haven't bought stock in the market, they don't think the stock's cheap. It's a capitalist system. If a politician doesn't, if they buy a beachfront house in a place where the beach is two inches above the water, they do not believe in climate change. They do not believe in, in rising sea levels. They can say whatever they want. They buy that house. You know that they do not believe in it. And you know, I don't know that they should necessarily get called out on it as much as that that behavior should be much better documented and should be the front yeah, of I the don't, conversation. I don't, I don't resent you for buying the beachfront house, but it's just, to your point, it means if it really is going to flood in 10 years, dude, it just cost you 14 million bucks. Right. I mean, it's just, it's indicative. Uh, my uh, training in economics is uh, heavily focused on that too. Lots of polls, lots of surveys. These mean nothing. What matters is what people do and where they spend their money. And so what they do, what they're spending their money on matters a lot. Where their money comes from matters a lot too. This is something that I think people started talking about briefly a few weeks ago, and then it got heavily suppressed in the media, heavily suppressed. We know that the USSR funded Greenpeace. We have documents showing that the USSR funded Greenpeace. I find it hard to believe that a former KGB agent who now essentially is the dictator of Russia is not funding the equivalent right now. It is hard to believe that. It beggars the imagination that he is not doing that. Right now, we are not at war. Thankfully, I'm not an advocate of World War III. I do not think we should go do various things to provoke world. But if we're providing money and resources to oppose him, we should identify where his and where the different oligarchs' money is going, what causes are being funded, and we should publicize that. And it should be in the front page of the newspaper. It is very hard to believe that these people that you're talking about Maybe what they're telling you is true, or maybe they're taking money to go do these things. And it is amazing what taking money to do something can do to what people actually do. Yeah, I I had a job for 20 years. <laughs> I, I, I kind of remember that. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, so here's kind of here's kind of the framework I've been looking at this stuff through because I think basically what you've highlighted is we do need a database, a depository of just flat out information. Chronicling the information I think is really important so that we have it to work from because there's a lot of misinformation out there. So I think that's important. What's interesting is if you get into the psychological studies of changing someone's mind, you can do it three ways. One, you can do it by solely asking questions. Actually, if you will not take a position, you just ask questions and you're able to lead people, that, that's one effective way of, of, of changing someone's mind. Two, making them laugh. I have a huge belief, and you, you may be in the age demographic where you can opine on this. I think folks your age and younger are more liberal than they'd normally be. Kids are always liberal, but they're more liberal because of Jon Stewart. I mean, say what you want about Jon Stewart. I watch The Daily Show every night. He made me laugh. 
I didn't agree with a lot of his politics, but he made me laugh. And I would sit there and go, okay, if John's that passionate about it, I ought to think about it. So making people laugh. And then the third way you can do it is scare them. And I don't know that we can, I, well, one, I don't know if it's morally right to scare back. Um, cause that's clearly what the environmentalists have done, but, and I don't know, even know what the scare back would be, you know, uh, in terms of doing it, but it's almost like we have to do this, this education, if you will, within one of those two lenses or else it's just not going to be effective. I mean, history kind of proves that out. And I think that's always my worry about when I look on Twitter and watch people advocating for energy it's like they're sitting around cheering in the echo chamber you know it's like okay you haven't changed anyone's mind you know so it's a it's a hard question but we've got to figure it out i think i think as this uh alternative energy bubble bursts and as this tech bubble bursts i think people will look for the next thing to invest in and the next thing it looks like is oil and gas and commodities and as people invest more in these businesses, as the percentage of the S&P that's allocated to energy goes, traditional energy goes from 2% to 4% back to its historic highs of 22 or 24%. As that happens, people's psychology changes, like you were saying, because there's money in it. And I don't know if that was one of those two that you were saying, but I think- No, but that's the, that's the I've always said there's the red problem in green problem the red problem is we lost a shit ton of money and you know the green problem is the environmental problem and i don't know that the green problem truly happens if we hadn't had the red problem if we were making folks money i think you're right because when you look back at the history you know you had the shale revolution start in natural gas when george bush was president and so it take politics out of it i think it's fair to say he might have been our most conservative president we've ever had. You could say that. Um, and basically what was said at the national level was, let's let the states deal with it. You're, you're going to go regulate oil and gas, Texas, Oklahoma, we sitting up here at the EPA, we're not going to do that. We're going we're gonna to watch them. Then you get Obama, and you could make a case that Obama's the most liberal president we've ever had. I mean, Biden's probably more but whatever, but a very liberal president. And the policy basically stayed the same. I mean, the EPA was a little more active. They were doing a little bit more, but for the most part, and that was because we were a meaningful part of the S&P 500. We were also union jobs, et cetera. So we mattered to people. And that's why, you know, both sides of the spectrum were able to agree that this is the way we handle it. And then all of a sudden, when not a meaningful part of the S&P 500. We're not meaningful labor jobs anymore. That's when the green problem was able to take hold in a big way. I think, I think that's a, a fair point. I mean, I interned for the Heritage Foundation while Bush was in office. So I don't think that was, the, I don't think conservatives thought he was particularly conservative. I don't know if, uh, I don't know kind of where, where that sat from like a uh, uh, American perspective broadly, but, but it was, that was not, I think uh, I was there summer of 2003 and that was right as I think he um, expanded uh, Medicare or expanded some sort of yeah, no, entitlement. That, I mean, if we're going to get into the minutiae, no, yeah, no, no, that's, no. That's, no, that's a fair thing to say because, 
I mean, his education stuff was done with Ted Kennedy. I but, mean, but I think so. it matters a lot because I think in the U.S. and in Canada, people look back at the most recent kind of uh, Republican president here, uh, excluding Trump for various reasons, and in Canada looking at uh, Harper, and they they think that they're um, the embodiment of those ideals, and they're not. In the same way right. as the um, you know, the Trudeau is definitely not the embodiment of liberal <laughs> ideals, and uh, you know, Obama and Biden are not the embodiment of uh, Democratic Party ideals. Right? You right. can just listen to people that su- support or supported them or voted for them. And in many cases, I mean, their their polling is really bad. And the you know, again, I said I don't trust polls, but hey, like people's polling for their ruling party person that they voted for might be more indicative than their polling for someone that they didn't vote for or don't like although it might be worthless but you just listen to what people say and they don't they don't say that they're embodying their values um so i think it's hard i think it matters a lot because of pipelines and export facilities and that's more of a canada issue than us but in the us and the marcellus we're still really suffering and well, the FERC just changed the rules on yeah. uh, on pipeline stuff to now you have to basically consider climate change and there are folks saying we're never going to build another pipeline in the united states again if those remain the rules i think they just changed i think they just approved three really small expansions or something but yeah i think generally interstate pipelines in the u.s are challenged great for texas internally terrible for basically everywhere else in the country um and really not a sustainable policy because you end up importing oil i think it was from like venezuela or some other sort of country that we're not really buddies with to or LNG to supply Boston with uh, gas and heating oil yeah, in they the winter. Im- they imp- I forget the name of the facility in Massachusetts, but they uh, it's the one LNG intake spot in the United States, but they, they import 20% of the uh, natural gas they use in the winter, and it's from Trinidad. That stuff needs to be going to Europe. You know, I mean, and then then you've got the Jones Act, which you can't use big tankers to go from U.S. to U.S. And so California, I mean, we could be running oil from Texas down through the Panama Canal over there. And instead, they're buying the Russian oil over in uh, over in California. So it makes yeah, yeah similar makes issues no in sense. Canada where they don't allow and there's different groups that blame it on different people. But in the end, it doesn't matter. It just matters that it doesn't exist. They import oil from Saudi Arabia and Russia to Eastern Canada instead of having a pipe to take it from Western Canada to Eastern Canada. Right. I mean, it's surreal. I mean, really, like just the the choice of like who they're supporting as well as how environmentally unfriendly it is. And then there's these different things that are, in my opinion, just inexcusable kind of like hit pieces where you see uh, these methane emission studies where they send planes and they never really share the calibrations. So it's always a little suspect or like the pictures that various publications showed of certain uh, wells that were supposedly off or whatever in Pennsylvania and West Virginia. And they never do it in Russia or Saudi Arabia or Venezuela. (laughs) They only do it here. And it's like, okay, well, who's paying for these, right? And why is this here? And why is it... I do not believe that U.S. natural gas production is less environmentally friendly than natural gas production in Qatar or Venezuela or Russia. I just, it's impossible. It's 
so far beyond the realm, just understanding how these operations work. I mean, operators here want to sell their gas, right? They make money by selling gas. If they can get more of their gas in the pipe, they make more money. Money is a very powerful motivator. Um, if you're in Russia and you're working for some state oil company, your compensation is not driven by the amount of gas that goes through. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I think that that really bothers me too, because the, that focus, um, I think it inappropriately labels um, the US and the Canadian industries as polluters and unfriendly. And then all that happens is they get substituted for less environmentally friendly sources of energy because you really need hydrocarbons to kind of get the whole system to work. As I always like to say, there's not a peeing and non-peeing part of the pool. That's I mean, right. you piss in the pool, you piss in the pool. And that's right. Yeah. No, it it's so yeah, I don't I don't know what we're gonna do about this. I mean, I, I will say this, you know, Colin's gone on a couple of uh podcasts of environmentalist type folks where at the end of the podcast, it was at least, Hey, I learned a lot about energy today. And so I do think I've been, I have maybe been sitting here overthinking it, that we need to create this format, whatever it is, it's children's character, you know, energy man, or just something. Maybe it really is as simple as we all just need to be out there talking in a reasonable voice I do think we need to show empathy towards people suffering from higher oil prices because it does no good to rub it in their faces that we're making a lot of money right now. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, maybe with a lot of education that that helps. I think I think the narrative needs to shift a little bit in terms of um, companies that are focusing on returning capital to shareholders. I don't think that's necessarily bad. I think there needs to be a lot more honesty about why that's happening. A lot of that right now is happening because they can't get service capacity to drill more wells. And so if you're trying to go get another rig and you can't, don't publicly lie and say that you're trying to be a good steward of capital by buying back more stock and paying a bigger dividend. I mean, there are companies that are choosing to do that, but in many cases, if not most cases, from I've started investing a little more in oil services companies, I've been doing a lot of diligence around that, and it's really hard to get an incremental rig. And you can get it, but it starts in six months or it starts in a year, depending on the size of company. Um, hard to find the people. And so there's a lot of, I think, disingenuousness around this whole return of capital and slow growth narrative. The world needs the oil. So I don't think it's the same situation as it was a year ago where you really needed that sort of capital constraint. And I think what the industry can do best is be honest about capital allocation, be honest about supply constraints, be honest about inventory constraints. And I know it sounds weird, but like as companies are more honest, not less, they build their cost of capital because it's like you were saying with publishing your data. If you honestly represent what you have, you have a better shot at getting fairly valued. And so as a public equity investor, I, I, I prefer companies that are more honest, that they think it hurts themselves because you know, they aren't good at investor relations from their perspective. And, you know, with a little bit of nudging and a little bit of kind of um, just massaging to make sure that they have their narrative right, they can share the truth about what's happening in terms of how much inventory they have, what their emissions are, various things that matter to various people for different reasons. And I think there's room, I think more honesty leads to more trust and more honesty leads to better outcomes. And I think you're absolutely right there. 
All right, let's close. Let's go to Twitter. We still beefing with Art Berman? Where are we with, with Art? No, I think I think we've, we've resolved that. Actually, Art has a higher undersupply forecast than I do. We both think the world's undersupplied for oil by a lot. Um, so you know, I think we're on the same page at this point. So you and Art have hugged it out. Okay, good. I like Art. I had Art uh, on the podcast right after one of his blow-ups with somebody. And I actually like Art. I've never met him in person because mm-hmm. that was uh, back during quarantine. So we had to do it over Zoom. But uh, I like Art. So good to hear. Energy Cynic, we still beefing with Cynic? Uh, he got mad at me. Um, I, I we we disagreed about the trajectory for oil price repeatedly over a almost fifty dollar move in oil price now, and uh, he also got mad because one of my core positions. Um, I kept talking about it, and it keeps doing well operationally. I think they've moved from forty million of operating cash flow to over a hundred million of operating cash flow in the six months or so that I've been talking about them. So their operational performance is great, and I think. Their stock performance is great too. And I don't know, I guess like apparently that is really bothersome. I, if I were wrong about something, I would talk about it. I've been right about this. And, you know, if people are upset about being right, there's only so much that you can do about that. So I'm still trying to figure out the technology of how we distort his voice on the way in here so we can settle this uh on the podcast it's uh it's just tough to uh figure that out but we uh we will figure that out so are you beefing with anybody else on twitter or is all well all well there was there was someone who was posting incorrect uh production forecasts for sandridge and repeatedly saying they would go bankrupt from when they were at 70 cents a share to uh he stopped posting i think he deleted his account a few months ago but i mean it's at 17 dollars now or something so at some point you'd think you'd just say okay their production's been flat for the last eight quarters, and they're not spending a lot of their money to keep it flat. Maybe my forecasts are wrong, or maybe I shouldn't have set my engineering software to have it fall off after two years or something. So um, I guess, but, but they I, I think I won. They deleted their account. So nice. Um, that's it. So nice. you know, I, honestly, like I think I'm I'm trying to. Uh, I think it's great to have constructive criticism and open debate, and I'm more focused on trying to figure out where I'm right and wrong and just having constructive conversations with people than in arguing with them. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I always learned as an investor is if somebody yells really loud, there's probably some grain of truth in there that I need to go figure out what it is. Yeah, so. absolutely. I think I think there's a lot of maturity in, in that. And it's just, it's hard. And sometimes you need to embarrass yourself. Sometimes you need to just be really wrong or come to a realization that someone that you argued with was right at some point in the past to accept that. And you know, I'm not sure it's maturity. I just got old, gave <laughs> up. <laughs> That's what they call it, I think. Exactly. The gray hair. Josh, you were cool to come on, man. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Uh, how do people get in contact with you? If, if they somehow don't know me yet, uh, they can find me on Twitter, Josh underscore young underscore one. Um, or uh, my uh, company's website, bisoninterests.com. Cool.